In a few moments' time, uh, Phil is going to come and bring God's word to us. Uh, but before he does, uh, we're going to read the, read the passage. Uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, tonight we're in chapter 17, and we're looking at verses 28 to 52. And if you're in the Red Church Bible, uh, it's page 288. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be someone on your tables, otherwise someone can come and hand one to you. So chapter 17, starting at verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he has been fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff from his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer, came in front of him, kept coming closer to David's. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at, with, come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, 
I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stank, sorry, the stone sank into his forehead and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shamarim road to Gath and Ekron. I'm going to leave it there. Let me just pray for Phil before he comes up. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this evening to gather around your words. Thank you for the time that Phil has spent in this passage this week, working out what you want to say through him this evening. Lord, I pray that you will use Phil now, that you would speak through him. Lord, please open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us this evening. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was uh, a child, we used to sing a song in Sunday school about David and Goliath, and the lyrics went like this. Only a boy called David, only a rippling brook, only a boy called David, but five little stones he took, and one little stone went in the sling, and the sling went round and round. Do you remember it? One little stone went in the sling, and the sling went round and round and round and round and round and round and round, and round endlessly. Uh, and one little stone went in the air, and the giant came tumbling down. I loved the song. I used to sing it loudly. The actions were brilliant. Um, but sadly and ironically for a song which is all about missiles hitting the right place, actually the song manages to miss the point of this story. Because the writer wants us to read this story and realize only God's king can rescue us from the power of God's enemies. It's not about a little boy. It's not about a sling going round and round. It's about God's king rescuing us from the power of God's enemies. You see, in this passage, there's no greater picture of the power of God's enemies than the person of Goliath. Do you remember from last week, the situation is, Goliath has the Israelites trapped. They were trapped in a military sense. They couldn't attack the Philistines because they were too weak and they couldn't retreat from the Philistines because they were to get squashed. But they were also trapped in a theological sense. Verse 16 tells us that for 40 days, Goliath defied them. Day after day, morning and evening, he boasted about his strength and the Israelites' weakness. There was no God in his picture. He was just giving his world view as he saw it. 
He was saying the world makes sense without God. That's what we call a secular world view. A secular worldview treats God as though God is dead, as though there's a concrete ceiling in the world between us and God. It's arrogant about its own strength, it's dismissive about God and his strength, and it's seeing the world without any reference to God. That is a secular worldview. It explains everything we see in our world. It's how Goliath saw the world. It's how our media and our friends see the world too. They try to make sense of the world without reference to God. So with this in mind, as we look at our passage this evening, there are two things that the writer wants us to see. The first is how easy it is to be drawn into the secular worldview around us. And the second is how much we need God's king to save us from it. And that leads us to our first point. You'll find them on the sheet. Open your eyes to the creep of secularization. Open your eyes to the creep of secularization. That opening section of this passage is fascinating because actually David has to fight his own people before he gets to fight Goliath on the battlefield. Did you see that? Look at Eliab, David's eldest brother, and how he responds to David. Verse 28, look at that with me. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him. Eliab then goes on to rant at David for hanging around and being only interested in watching the battle. He's saying, you're only here because you want a bit of entertainment. That's it, David. Then when David gets to Saul, this is Saul's reaction in verse 33. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. And then what Saul does, quite cleverly, he kind of hedges his bets, but he also tries to put his trust in the weapons technology of his day. So he gives um, David his little, his little um, uh, uh, armor and says, there you are, off you go. Good luck. If you win, yay, it's my stuff. If you don't, mm, you're a little boy. Hedges his bets. Can you see the secular thinking? Eliab and Saul can only see what is in front of them. Eliab, this is his kid brother, who's only useful for chasing sheep. Saul, this is a little boy who's got no experience. They've cut God out of the picture, and all they're left with is only a boy called David. That's the secular worldview. They'd forgotten their God. They'd stopped thinking like God's people. And they'd begun to think like the secular world around them. And let me just underline that a little bit more. Because look at verse 42. This is Goliath's reaction to David. He looked at David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Can you see how his thinking is so similar to Eliab's and Saul's thinking? 
They all look at David and see David's weakness. They don't see God's powerful, anointed king who will save them. And for Saul to be thinking along the same lines as Goliath shows how far Saul had drifted from a God-fearing worldview. Over the last few chapters, actually, when you read them through from that perspective, what you see is Saul increasingly doing things his own way, increasingly cutting God out of his worldview. And God actually is increasingly frustrated by the way that Saul rejects his God. And that's why, in the end, God says, Okay, Saul, you have grieved me. You have grieved me and I am rejecting you. That's why Samuel, who is the prophet in the situation, the voice of God in the situation, packs up his bags and goes elsewhere. Never speaks to Saul again because it's Saul, God's word removing itself from the presence of Saul. That is a horrendous place to be. To be in a place where you've so cut yourself off from God that God's word has nothing to say in your life. That's where Saul is. And so he's trying to make sense of his world without reference to God. So before David gets on the battlefield, he's fighting a secular worldview amongst God's people. And it's a sobering thought, isn't it? It's a sobering thought for God's people today if they were able to drift so so aimlessly away from reference to God into a secular world view then it's very very it's very very obvious that our challenge is to 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 um, to, to look out for this creep this this creep of a secularization in our lives It's easy for it to happen because the world is bombarding us all the time with a secular worldview that doesn't believe there's a God. So young people, let's let's be very honest about Love Island. I know I know at a stretch you could call it gripping drama, but let's not kid ourselves. It's a program devoted to glorifying sex before marriage to glorifying betrayal, lust, a low self-esteem, emotional manipulation, gossip. It's a program that plays with people's lives. It's a program that exploits insecurities. And it's a program that does all of those things for our entertainment. In a word, it is the glamorous form of exploitation is there a mention of God's design for sex in that program no is there a mention of a secure identity defined by the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and gave himself for us no And the problem is, if as individuals we are not convinced of God's design for sex and relationships with him at the center, we will drift into thinking that the Love Island train wreck is the norm for relationships, even in church. 
And I say that because I've known church youth group where, where a secular worldview hasn't been challenged and God's design for relationships hasn't, hasn't been championed and, and the youth group has been reduced to one big Love Island soap opera. And I know that because my young people in my youth group, this is about 10 years ago, the young people in my youth group saw how in a secular worldview, they, they were attracted to that youth group and they hung around that youth group for a few months and then came back destroyed but wanting the word of God. And do you know what? Relationships is just one area of our lives where we can find a secular worldview creeping in. I could go on. We could apply this to our giving, to our serving, to our gossip, to our drinking, to our prayer meetings, to our quiet times, to our language, to our texting, to our tweeting, to our Instagramming. The worldview of the world is bombarding us constantly. And if we're not careful, it will creep into our lives and take us over just like it took over Saul. So when you see God's king, you say, what a weako. What an absolutely rubbish little answer to my problems. You can't see him. Because all you've done is built a concrete ceiling between God and yourself. All you've done is assimilated the creep of the secular worldview and God's solution to all your insecurities, all your relationship problems, all your lack of prayer, all your texting issues, all your language, all of that will be absolutely overwhelming. And you'll see God's king and you'll go... I can't see him as dealing with this. That was the situation of Israel, of Saul, of Eliab. They just couldn't see David as the answer. God's anointed king as the one who will save them from the creeping secularization in their world. That's a desperate situation, isn't it? And the question is, how do, you draw, how do you avoid the drift? How do you avoid going to school tomorrow and being embarrassed to say, I, I went to church yesterday? How do you avoid keeping your head down at work and just, just not mentioning God or Jesus? How do you get over the pain barrier when you want to talk to your neighbor about him? How do you do it? That brings us to our second point. Trust God's king to break the power of God's enemies. Trust God's king to break the power of God's enemies. David responds to Saul with his God-fearing worldview. This is really refreshing. I love it. And he preaches his convictions into the situation. Look at verse 34 to 37 with me. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the enemies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Do do you see David's conviction there? He's been a shepherd already, and in that lowly role, 
He's seen the work of the hand of the Lord. A bear comes up, a lion comes up, tries to nick one of his sheep. In God's strength, he actually takes the bear and the lion out. And so now David is appointed the shepherd of God's people. His logic is this. As a lowly shepherd of sheep, God gave me power. As God's anointed shepherd of God's people, God would give me power. Not because David was strong or powerful like Goliath, but because he was appointed by God to be God's anointed saving king. And it's massive logic. David is saying to Saul, God's king, whether a hulking great man or a feeble-looking boy, God's king will deliver God's people from the enemies that enslave them. The power is in the anointing, not the muscle. The power is in the anointing, not the muscle. God's king will deliver them from their secular worldview and will save them. The solution looks weak, but the power of God's salvation is enormous. But David's other logic is that if you defy God, you invite God's wrath. That's what he preaches on the battlefield in verse 45. Look at verse 45 with me. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Goliaths come against God's people with a rebellious secular worldview, determined to defeat God's people, defy the living God, and, and, and assimilate them into, his, in, into the Philistine kingdom. And that's why David is so confident uh, of the final verdict. The final reason Goliath was going to be wild dog food on that battlefield is because he had insulted God. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. He understood that God is passionate about the glory of his name. He's passionate about his plan of salvation through Israel. He is convinced that God will act and God will move and God will defend his own honor. He's convinced that God will protect his people because God's name is written in them and his promises rest on them. And because of God's commitment to those people, because God had chosen them in the world to carry his name, then to defy God, to defy God's people is belittling God's mighty hand. And David's saying, you just don't get away with that. It's just not going to happen. Goliath, you are toast. And here's the interesting thing. We're not told much about the battle and the outcome. Relative to all the theology we've looked at, the battle itself, the sling going round and round and round and round, is all a bit incidental. It happens in a blink of the eye. The stone goes into the sling, the sling goes round, the stone goes up, the giant comes down. And God's people follow their king, King David, to victory over the Philistines. 
So what's the point that the writer is trying to help us see? Well, he's trying to help us see the story is not about drama. It's not about the classic underdog victory stereotype. This passage is about the promised king. King Jesus. We saw last week how David as shepherd and saviour of God's people is a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory over the power of God's enemies. That's what this passage points to. And we're to look at the parallels. The secular worldview around David scorned his power. Just like the secular worldview today and for the last 2,000 years has scorned the power of Jesus Christ. David overcame Goliath, but Jesus overcomes the enemies of sin and death. David gave God's people the courage to follow him into battle, but Jesus gives God's people his Holy Spirit in them so that we can fight the world by living his righteousness, his values, his kingdom, his glory. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this, He himself, talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So if we trust God's King, King Jesus, and this is the important thing, the power of the secular worldview is broken. Its power over us is broken. Just to explain that a little bit, before we were Christians, we could not fight a secular worldview because we belonged to it. But when we became Christians, Jesus gave us a relationship with God. He saved us out of that worldview and into a God-fearing worldview. So we belong to his kingdom. And because we belong to his kingdom, Jesus, by God the Holy Spirit, gives us strength to fight sin. He gives us strength to fight the influence of the world. He gives us a new heart to follow him, to listen to him, to come under his care, to love him. That's the power of Jesus in us. So when we're tempted to drift, to listen to the world around us more than God, we come back to this point. Jesus has broken the power of the world over us. It means we're not powerless anymore. So put yourself on the battlefield. Put yourself on that battlefield. You're not David. You're just a little Israelite, no name. And your champion goes out. And in two seconds, it's all over. What does the champion do? He doesn't scurry back to your own lines, does he? No. He goes over to the body of Goliath. He picks up Goliath's sword and he chops off his head and lifts up his head for everybody to see. Let me just, let me just explain that a little bit. So our champion, Our champion is a billion times better. 
He's flogged and beaten and spat upon and stripped naked and thorns are plunged into his head and nails are slammed into his hands and his feet and everybody mocks him and he dies a pauper's death, a criminal's death, absolutely destroyed, it seems. And three days later, there is an earthquake. Three days later, an angel rolls back a stone. Three days later, he steps out of his tomb in victory. And in his hand is the world and the flesh and the devil, the head of the snake cut off for all the world to see. Jesus has triumphed over death and sin and the devil. What are you going to do as God's people? Are you going to turn around and go, oh, well, that's it. That's the end then, isn't it? Oh, thank you very much. That's good. No, because the people of Israel charged down the hill after the Philistines. A victorious people over God's enemies because God's king had won the victory. My dear brothers and sisters, we struggle so much with sin, don't we? the head of the snake. We struggle so much with temptation, the devil's lies. We so struggle with secularization, that that programming of our culture. But Christ holds the head of the snake up for us all to see. It's our privilege to follow him, knowing he has given us the power to fight these things. Oh yes, we will fail. We will stumble, we will fall. But my goodness, get up. Because the victory is won. And our champion goes forward. We are victorious people. Over the enemies of God's people. Let's follow him. In his victory, in his strength, that he gives us by his spirit. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Savior of the world, God's anointed saving King, we worship you this evening. Because you have won the fight by dying on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Father God, we we fail so many times, we admit that. So many times our secular worldview convinces us of its ways. But oh Lord God, We pray more and more we would see the power of God's King to overcome his enemies and follow him. Lord God, when we are tempted, may we follow Jesus. When we sin, may we turn to Jesus and seek his forgiveness and seek his strength to fight our sin and follow him.
Lord God, I pray and I ask, I plead that we would not see Jesus as a weak solution to our enemies, but as God's saving King who comes in power, the power of God to deal with them. We pray this in your name. Amen.